Support for Innovation Hub comes from the Graken Center for Addiction at Boston Medical Center, making long-term recovery a reality for patients like Cassie, who now supports others struggling with the disease. You can see Cassie's story and learn more at bmcaddiction.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Cambridge Savings Bank. Introducing the CSB1 package, a checking account combined with investing through Connect Invest to help you build a better tomorrow. cambridgesavings.com/csb1 Welcome to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. We fool ourselves about lots of things. By and large, we think we're smarter, more civic-minded, and fairer than we really are. The good part about that, I guess, is that we aspire to be smart and civic-minded and fair. The bad part is that we can keep our real selves hidden behind this sort of beautiful facade because we know what's acceptable to show to people and what isn't. Seth Stevens-Davidowitz is an economist who has spent years studying our real selves, that somewhat less visible core that nevertheless is an important part of who we are. Seth is a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times, and he's also author of the new book, Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. And I should mention before we get into this that there will be some pretty frank discussion about both race and sex. So on that note... Seth, welcome. Thanks so much for having me, Kara. So how did you get started thinking search engines, like Google searches mostly, that's the key, that, that what people put in that search box really reveals a lot about um, who they are, even like the person that they are that they keep hidden? Well, about five years ago, I was doing research when Barack Obama was president on uh, the effects that race had in the 2000. Uh, eight election, whether a lot of people did not support Obama because he was black. And a lot of the evidence from surveys said that this was a tiny factor. Very, very few people uh, cared that Obama was black. Mm. We were living in a post-racial society, if people remember that that, that time period. Uh, and I uh, found this new data from Google, and I was basically just shocked at what I saw, the uh, amount of racist searches that people made. And I found that basically these correlate almost perfectly with parts of the country where Obama did worse than other Democratic Mm. uh, candidates. So it seemed like uh, people were saying one thing and uh, doing something totally different and online uh, seemed to be the way to to find this truth. Um, When you say a racist search, what is a racist search? Yeah, so it's the percent of Google searches that include the racist uh, N-word. But a lot of people make searches for like N-word jokes and uh, I hate... N-word, uh, mm. millions of these searches every year, mm. and you get a, to- a, a like a real clear map of when you see where these searches are most frequent, you get a striking map of uh, racial animus in the United States, and it's a very different map uh, from the one that I would have guessed or the one that surveys told us. Mm. Uh, I think most people think that racism is predominantly an issue in the South, that the big divide is North versus South, but actually uh, the big racist divide today in the United States is not North versus South, it's East versus West. Racism huh. is very high in many parts of Northeast in upstate New York and industrial Michigan and Western Pennsylvania, Eastern Ohio. Uh, it's about as high there as anywhere. So re- really, there are many parts of Northern America that also have these attitudes. But you don't see as many searches with the N-word in Utah or in California. Yeah, exactly. Really? Pretty much west of the Mississippi, it drops pretty substantially. 
You also say um, that when you were looking at the Obama election, and as you said, you know, we, we, in the media, uh, you know, I remember 2008 so well, and, and obviously into the beginning of 2009, because that was the inauguration, people were talking about this idea of like, have we entered a post-racial America? Um, but you say that while that was happening in full view, right, on, on TV and stuff, the white nationalist organization Stormfront had this surge in popularity after Obama was elected. Explain that and like what you saw in the data there. Yeah, so Stormfront is uh, is a site that I had never actually heard of Stormfront. I found Stormfront because I was, well, people make up embarrassing Google searches. One of the embarrassing Google searches I make is for my own name a lot. And I was searching for my own name and I found that uh, this website Stormfront was discussing my work. Uh, and I had no idea what um, it was, but it was a, a white nationalist site. They were they keep track of Jewish writers in the media. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of became interested in it and started studying who joins this site, when people join this site. So it's another window into hate. Uh, it used to be that hate groups were offline, and we didn't really know very much about them. They had these secretive meetings. Uh, the KKK had secretive meetings in back rooms, and we really didn't know who joined them, why people joined them. But now uh, hate is moving online to sites like Stormfront, and we're a- able to analyze the data and learn a lot more about what causes people to join such a, just such a site. And one of the things that led to a big surge in this in membership was uh, the election of Obama. Hmm. You also talk about, in thinking about race, you also talk about this moment in um, 2015, right after uh, the shootings in San Bernardino, where President Obama gives a speech and he says, you know, we're going to do everything we can to fight back against terrorism, but it's really important uh, to remember that Muslim Americans are patriots, that Muslims around the world are very often the people who are the victims of terrorism. Explain the effect of that speech, as far as you can tell, from essentially Google searches. Yeah, so there's a a corner of Google searches that is really, really, really nasty, kind of extreme searches. People make searches such as kill Muslims. And we've shown that these searches actually predict hate crimes. So when these searches are high, there are going to be more uh, attacks at mosques or beating up of Muslim Americans. So these are kind of crazy people, right? These are not necessarily the most sane members of society, people who are searching uh, something like kill Muslims. But they're not a part of society that we've traditionally studied very much. They don't go into uh, Harvard psychology labs to be studied. Uh, They're not really uh, so easy to track. But uh, because of Google searches, we can actually see basically minute by minute uh, what causes people to have these violent thoughts to the extent that they they make these uh, crazy searches on Google. And one of the things I did study was this speech that Obama made after the San Bernardino attack. What I found, I was working with Evan Soltas then at Princeton University, and what we found is that o- Obama gave this speech that was very, very well received. He talked about uh, how it's the responsibility of Americans to reject hate and to support freedom instead of fear and to reject uh, religious tests for allowing uh, people into this country. And it was a very well-received speech. Uh, the New York Times loved it. The Los Angeles Times loved it. Pretty much everybody gave it rave reviews. Uh, but we found by actually tracking these searches that basically every time Obama made one of these comments, there was a huge explosion in these nasty searches such as kill Muslims or I hate Muslims or Muslims mm-hmm. are evil or die Muslims or, or, or a lot of these crazy searches, which really suggests that sometimes rhetoric that we think is doing well and think is doing the job uh, actually backfires. We did notice one line in that speech. Uh, Obama talked about how Muslim Americans are athletes and uh, men and women who die in uniform protecting this country. 
And right after that line, there was a, a big surge in searches for Muslim athletes and Muslim soldiers. So people became curious, who are these people? And then mm. they started tweeting about how Shaquille O'Neal was uh, a Muslim athlete. They hadn't known that before. So we suggested that maybe uh, instead of lecturing people uh, to make them less angry, which maybe will just backfire, you might want to provoke people's curiosity and change how they think about a group. Hmm. Uh, after we wrote that article, you know, it was in the New York Times. It got a lot of attention. I think perhaps somebody in, in the Obama White House read our article because uh, a few weeks later, he gave another speech at a, a Baltimore mosque. And again, that this was uh, nationally televised, got a lot of attention. Uh, but this time, Obama stopped with the lectures and the talk of responsibility and instead uh, really doubled down or quadrupled down on on uh, the, the curiosity part. So he talked about how Muslim Americans built skyscrapers in Chicago and uh, their mm. teachers and firefighters and Thomas Jefferson had a copy of the Koran. And mm. uh, after he made this speech, uh, this, the really nasty searches, kill Muslims, I hate Muslims, Muslims are evil, they went down after this speech. So it did seem this speech was a lot more uh, successful. And I think that really shows the power of uh, this data where uh, we could actually, you know, how to calm an angry mob is not right. necessarily something that has been researched very frequently. Right, right, right. We haven't had minute by minute uh, searches on people who desire killing a group of, of human beings. We now do have that data and can actually turn it into something like a science, which is pretty remarkable. How accurate or how exact can you be with this data? I think uh, there's definitely there are definitely limits. You know, I, I think you can see kind of broad patterns. Like I think it's meaningful if searches are twice as high in one place as they as they are in another, or if searches have uh, risen, you know, eighty percent in the last uh, you know year or something. Then that would probably be a meaningful pattern. If they've gone up one percent or two percent, or they're uh, you know one percent higher here, then th then that might be uh, something you'd view with more caution. Uh, but I think some of the new data sources get unfairly maligned uh, as if the existing data sources are perfect, and they're clearly not, right? Uh, so like, there are lots of holes in uh, a lot of the traditional methodologies that we've been using uh, and imperfections. So uh, I don't know that there's more noise uh, in these data sources than there have been in previous data sources. And I think uh, over time, we'll probably get better at, at, at learning different ways to weight the data and, mm. and take out even more of that noise. This is Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Seth Stevens-Davidowitz, author of the book, Everybody Lies. He's also a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times. So I want to shift gears quite a lot here, but still to something that people are not that honest about. And it's sex. People lie all the time about it. You found that out. And I want you to walk us through this exploration you did a little bit because the numbers are fascinating. You look at condom sales, like actual condom sales is not web searches at all. This is actual sales. And you notice that the the answers to surveys just completely do not match up with like the hard numbers in terms of what has been sold. So give me a sense of like what you found and what people are being honest and dishonest about. Yeah, so if you ask uh, the General Social Survey, this massive academic uh, research operation, asks Americans how much sex do you have and how frequently do you use a condom. And uh, if you do the math based on those answers, then American men say they use 1.6 billion condoms in heterosexual sex every year. American women say they use 1.1 billion condoms in heterosexual sex every year. Uh, of course, those numbers by definition <laughs> have to be the same. So you kind of already know that that, that somebody's lying, right? Because uh, there's there are only so many heterosexual sexual encounters that used a condom in a given year. Uh, so who's telling the truth? Uh, neither 
data uh, provided to me by Nielsen says that only 600 million condoms are sold every year. So basically everybody's uh, lying about sex. So you've got 1.6 billion, men are saying 1.6 billion, women are saying 1.1 billion, but really the sales are only 600 million. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And some of those by gay men and some of them thrown out. So probably a lot even fewer are actually mm. used in, in sex. Now, this, of course, does not mean that uh, people are lying about how much sex they have. They may just be lying about how frequently they use a condom. Uh, but if you actually look at how frequently people say that they have unprotected sex, uh, basically, if people are having as much unprotected sex as they had, uh, if you do the math, there would be a lot more pregnancies in the United States. So I think the overall evidence is that people are just lying about how much sex they're having uh, protected or unprotected. In the United States today, there's a huge uh, pressure to maybe uh, m- make it seem like you're having more sex than you actually are having. Hmm. Can you tell why, like from searches, why it might be that people are not having as much sex as they say they are? Um, I wonder if there are clues as to why these numbers like don't match up. Well, I think uh, one thing that is very striking in Google searches, and this may play some role in lack of sex, is a tremendous amount of uh, bodily insecurity around sex. Hmm. Uh, so I talk about that a lot in the book, that uh, men make, uh, I think, more searches about their uh, their penis than any other body part, basically concerned that it's that it's that it's small and how they can make it bigger. Hmm. And another one, I, I help people make weird searches into Google. The most common searches men make about their uh, genital organ is how big is my penis, which also like it doesn't make sense that you're asking Google that, right? <laughs> yeah, probably not unless they know way more than we think. Yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, people make really weird searches on Google. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I wanted to call my book that, but my publisher said that 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 would, that would be a tough sell. Like, mm. how big is my penis? What Google searches reveal about human nature? But, it's a good title. It's a good title. But I can see why maybe I don't know bookstores wouldn't want to display it or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so and then women have their own bodily insecurities hmm. around uh, you know all all different areas of their body. So I think hmm. like those numbers are are staggering the amount of searches people make. Hmm. Uh, worried about things. So I think when you have that level of anxiety, it probably uh, does make sense that there's not that much sex going on. Right. uh, I think it's hard to have sex when you're that insecure about your body. So when you talked about um, Obama's San Bernardino speech, um, you talked about ways in which this data can be used to maybe change presidential speeches so that people actually focus on the things that the president wants them to focus on rather than have this unintended sort of backlash kind of reaction. Are there other ways, specific ways that you can think of to use this data to help improve the world? There's one example that's a little silly, but I think it's actually really, really important. When I talked about bodily insecurities, uh, I talked about how men are obsessed with the size of their genitals, which is not so surprising. Uh, But there was a surprise that was among the biggest concerns that women have uh, that I definitely did not know about, uh, which was women make a lot of searches uh, concerned about vaginal odor. When I first did this research, I kind of wrote it about it as kind of a joke. It kind of made me chuckle. It made other people chuckle. But then I got a lot of uh, emails from people in sexual education, and they're like, is there a way we can incorporate this data? If you actually look at these searches, a lot of these searches are from like uh, 13, 14-year-old, 15-year-old uh, young girls hmm. who literally think their lives are over over this issue. They're paranoid. They're really that this is like the worst thing that could ever happen to, to a human being. And this isn't really talked about necessarily in sex ed because people didn't really know uh, how widespread this paranoia is. So I've been talking to people in sex ed about how can we incorporate some of this this research uh, into sexual education and maybe reduce the paranoia among young girls. So that's like the reason I like this example uh, is because it's this area that 
is so embarrassing that it's not really talked about and we didn't know about it. But by aggregating everyone's data on Google searches where they are honest, we learn about this kind of widespread insecurity that Hmm. previously uh, we didn't really know about and can uh, maybe lower this insecurity. So that's one example. What did studying all this stuff, I mean, it could be about sex or it could not be, but what did this teach you about common wisdom and the kind of things that I mean, you talk about your grandmother, but the kind of wisdom that, like, grandmothers dispense or, you know, people who, you know, just a trusted friend would dispense, you know, sort of this conventional wisdom that people have accumulated over a lifetime of seeing relationships or seeing politics or whatever it is. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I, I talk a little bit about my grandma. I tried to make the hero of my story because I said she's kind of the original <laughs> big, big data. Uh, you know, originally, I think before... Uh, the phrase big data even existed. We, we relied a lot, a lot on the elderly because they had seen so much. Uh, so they were able to kind of look at, at patterns in the same way that now a data scientist at Google or Facebook does right. uh, and make sense of them. Uh, but I do think that just in general, people are fairly off in how they think the world works just because of cognitive biases we have as well as people lying to us. So we generally get an inaccurate view of the world when we uh, listen to what people uh, tell us. Hmm. Just because it, it, they've only seen so much. They've only seen so much. And a lot of people are people tend to exaggerate the value of their own stories. And mm-hmm. uh, I, t- I talk about like what makes a relationship wor- work. And a lot of people think that you want to have a common group of friends so that you kind of always hang around the same people and then you don't have to go your separate ways. Uh, but actually data from Facebook shows that makes a relationship not work. Uh, if you're hanging around with the same group of friends, you're more likely to break up. Uh, it's more it's more you're more likely to stay together if you have separate circles of friends. Hmm. Uh, so there are a lot of things just kind of over and over again where the intuition or the traditional advice that uh, people have told us is wrong. And I think there is, you know, th- there is so much uh, dishonesty. I think I just view the world totally differently after looking at this data than I did beforehand. Uh, I, I talk a little bit about anxiety in the in the in the book. And I- I'm from the, uh, New Jersey, like New York area. And I've always kind of like made jokes about being very neurotic and how anxious I am. And, uh, you know, like you kind of like you model yourself on, on like Woody Allen and Larry David, right. and all like neurotic Jews, <laughs> you know, like, oh, that, you know, that's me. I'll make the same jokes. And people always laughed and like, oh, yes, that's so anxious. But like when you actually look at the data and a, a lot of the data that I've been looking at, particularly Google searches, like New York City and Jewish people do not seem to have particularly high levels of anxiety. Like there's much more. <laughs> There's much more anxiety in like Kentucky and upstate New York. I think there are more Woody Allens in Kentucky than in New York City. They just don't make movies about their their neuroses. So that kind of just totally blew my mind mm. of how I see the world. And now I'm just like, oh, everybody's anxious. Just some people are more like for cultural reasons, make a bigger deal out of it and and talk about it more. But I th- I don't I don't really think uh, there's an unusual level of anxiety among the circle I hang out with. It's mostly <laughs> New York Jews. That's interesting. There's an untapped movie making market in Kentucky, is what you're saying. Well, yeah, I, I, that, that might be it. I think it's just I think I, I think just in general, like there's so much of the world is just like our view is just biased by right. what people say. Right. Uh, and what what's socially acceptable. At some point, it became acceptable for New York Jews to talk about how anxious and neurotic they were. That became funny. So mm-hmm. everybody started talking about it where it never really became uh, socially acceptable for people in Kentucky to talk about this. So they didn't talk about it. Mm-hmm. And then everyone just assumed, oh. There's all this anxiety among, you know, urban intellectuals, which I don't think now I think is just not true at all. Seth Stevens-Davidowitz is a contributing op-ed writer for The New York Times and author of Everybody Lies, Big Data, New Data, and What the Internet Can Tell Us About Who We Really Are. Seth, thank you so much. It's really interesting. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Kara. Searching. 
On our website, we've got links to some of the columns that Seth wrote for the New York Times, including a fascinating one on sex. And we've got a part of our conversation that we couldn't fit in here about what Google searches show us about who is gay and whether they want to reveal that publicly. That's at our website, innovationhub.org. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute, working to unleash the immune system's power to fight cancer and help develop promising new therapies. Videos, white papers, and patient stories are available at discovercarebelieve.org. In the 1960s, in America, there was a psychological test that was so popular it was given about a million times a year. The idea of the test was that it could help understand what sort of person you were. Twenty years earlier, though, when it was somewhat less well-known, the test, which is named after its founder, Hermann Rorschach, was administered to some of the world's most high-profile subjects, the Nazi high command, who by then had been put in prison. And the question that everyone wanted to know was pretty simple. What is the Nazi personality? What are the special characteristics of it? Damien Searles is the author of The Ink Blots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and The Power of Seeing. He writes about the unique role of Rorschach the man, who is both an artist and a psychiatrist, and the test he created, which has been changing the world for a century now. Searle says that in the 1940s, the prison psychiatrist at Nuremberg decided this was the test to give. What it revealed seemed crazy. It was a challenge to what people believed about good and evil. What the Rorschach found was nothing. In other words, there was a range of variations. Some of the Nazis were violent psychopaths, and some of them were very well-adjusted, you know, bureaucrats. And there was the same sort of range that there would be anywhere else. And this freaked them out. They didn't expect this. They expected... This freaked out the scientists. Exactly, because here's the world's best technique, and here's the, like, world's most extreme set of people, and it's not finding anything. So... One of them, the psychiatrist, said, well, you know, this shows that criminals aren't crazy. They're just bad people or in a bad context or however you want to interpret it. There's not a kind of special psychology of being a Nazi, of being a bad person. The other one couldn't accept this and massage the Rorschach results to make it seem like it showed how, you know, awful they all were. He published articles later called things like the mentality of SS murderous robots. So, you know, he was very invested in this mid-century idea that, you know, there is a personality type that could do these sorts of things. But the actual test results sort of didn't confirm what the scientists were expecting. And they were sort of buried. Um, There was going to be a big conference publicizing the results, and every single leading Rorschach scientist in the world suddenly had an appointment that day and couldn't (laughs) quite make it. and, And it didn't happen because I think none of them could really believe what they were seeing. It was only after Milgram and Hannah Arendt that scientists went back and were able to really analyze the results for what they were. And now I just want to touch on that point again of like that they couldn't believe what they were seeing. And in your view, like what they were seeing, what they didn't want to see, um, 
was that these were kind of, I don't know, for lack of a better word, normal people who had done terrible things, not like a special breed of terrible people. Exactly. You know, there were some qualities that they shared. They did tend to sort of be a bit more adaptable in following instructions than the norm. But really, their differences were much more significant than their similarities. The psychiatrist even said, you know, it's the same range of variation as there would be in your local PTA meeting. And this was something that was just not what the world was ready to hear in the 40s. Hmm. So let's talk a little bit about how Herman Rorschach came up with this test. Um, as I noted, he was an artist. He was a psychiatrist. Um, and actually, his father was an artist. How did he come up with these inkblots? And then, like, how did he fit them into the science and the psychology uh, that was understood at the time? Yeah, that's the reason that my book talks about his life as well as talking about the history of the test, because it really was this kind of artistic creation as well as a scientific advance or method. So Hermann Rorschach was born in 1884. He was Swiss-German. Both his parents died young, and so he decided to become a doctor. And then inspired by sort of Tolstoy and the Russians, he decided to become a doctor of the soul, not, you know, a radiologist or bone setter or something. But he decided to become a psychiatrist. The thing is that he was a visual person. As you said, his dad was a, a drawing teacher. He was a lifelong keeper of sketchbooks. He kept visual diaries of his kids. He took photographs of the landscape and also of his patients that he organized by diagnosis as a sort of way of understanding them better. And so even in some kind of amazing personal details, you know, there's a recorded evidence that in college he used to go to the art museum with his friends and afterwards he'd ask all his different friends what they thought of a given painting, stuff like that. Hmm. So he really had this deep sense that how you see is very characteristic of who you are. And Herman Rorschach worked in these big, you know, basically state hospitals with lots of very seriously psychotic people, not the kind of people who can come sit on your couch for an hour five days a week. And so he wanted to try and connect with them in other ways. And even if they weren't talkative or even, you know, responsive, he would try to give them drawing supplies or do games with them or things like that. And so he knew that there were visual approaches you could take to people. Uh, in other words, ways to ways to connect with them other than talking with them. Hmm. There have certainly been times when the Rorschach test was super popular and it was heavily depended upon for all sorts of things. Do you think that Herman Rorschach would have liked that? Uh, or do you think he would have worried about it? It's certainly true in mid-century that it was used in this way that was over the top in terms of people thinking that it was some sort of like truth serum, magic mind reading technique. And any real world decisions that were based on that are obviously flawed. And that's not how it should have been used. You know, there is a letter that Herman Rorschach wrote uh, to a colleague, kind of a frenemy who was working with him <laughs> as he was developing the test. And he said, you know, gold mine, 
because I'm plugged into the German educational system and this can be used like throughout the system for basically aptitude testing. And Herman Rorschach wrote this letter and said, hold on, slow down. You know, when I think about someone whose lifelong dream has been to go to university and they're prevented from doing it because of this test, I feel like I can't breathe. Hmm. Maybe it could work for some kind of aptitude testing, but first you need to do a lot of statistics and get big sample sizes and really check everything. And I actually think, Rorschach said, that it will be better for, you know, what kind of lawyer should you be? Should you be mm -hmm. a high-pressure trial attorney or like a backroom introverted tax lawyer? You know, it probably won't be good for you should or shouldn't get into law school. So he personally, I mean, this is one of his kind of winning qualities. Like he was very sensitive to possible misuse and aware that it absolutely shouldn't be used without proper controls in any kind of real-world situations. You're listening to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller, and I'm talking with Damien Searles, author of the book, The Inkblots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and the Power of Seeing. Can you talk a little bit about the moment when the Rorschach test became big in the U.S.? It was this moment where bigger institutions wanted to categorize people. So can you talk a little bit about like what happened, how did it take off, and, and what that moment felt like? So the Rorschach first came to America a couple years after Rorschach died. Uh, it was first given in Chicago, already in the mid-20s. And it, there was a kind of trickle of interest in psychology, but the real crux came with World War II. Because with World War II, you have a draft, and so Every able-bodied man in America is being given medical tests and also psychological tests. And the results shocked people. I mean, rural health in America was very poor. There was a lot of, you know, deformity and missing teeth and weakness and bad hygiene and bad food supplies and malnutrition and all this kind of stuff. It was very shocking. And then psychologically, too, 12% of the people were found psychologically unfit to serve in the army. And, you know, maybe some of them were faking it, but most of them weren't. And this blew the minds of people in the army, in the government, in the medical establishment. Mental illness was not, it turned out, just, you know, a few people in asylums. It was something that was really affecting a massive part of the country. And so partly by an accident of history, the Rorschach was sort of ready to step up as a psychological test just when you suddenly had all this public and government pressure to step up psychology. And so in any history of, of psychiatry and psychology in America, it's World War II that's this pivotal moment because you have mass application of psychological tests and you suddenly realize that there's this mass need for psychology. And do you feel ever like I mean, maybe this has always been true, and, and we tend to think about our own times um, as sort of the center of our lives. But this right. <laughs> moment seems like such a Rorschach test where, I mean, people can look at a reality that I guess is objective, and you've got two people, I mean, especially across the political divide, people just see it, I mean, radically differently. And they're seeing the same person or the same people take the same actions, right. but their interpretation, wow, could not be further apart. No, it certainly seems to be 
a real high point or low point of that kind of diversity of reaction to things. But, you know, this is how I end my book. The last chapter is called The Rorschach Test is Not a Rorschach Test. And what I mean by that kind of as a joke is that the real Rorschach test is not this relativist cliche thing where anything can mean anything and nothing matters and all facts are alternative facts. Mm. You know, the real ink blots have objective visual properties. The real test actually works or doesn't work to measure this or that, and you can prove it. So in a way, the real Rorschach test is kind of also an image that gets us past this metaphorical test. Because think about it. If if you're on a couch and you tell someone your dream, then they don't have any independent access to that. You know, they can only sort of listen to you and interact with you. But if someone says, okay, what is this inkblot? And you say it, then they can take the same inkblot and look at it themselves. And there's this literal piece of visual common ground. You actually are both looking at the same thing. And there's millions of data points over the last century about how other people have seen the same thing. So you can really actually get at, you know, is this a standard or non-standard way of looking at it? What does it correlate with? Things like that. So the fact that it's visual is kind of a nice image for the fact that even if we do have different perspectives on reality, we are ultimately looking at the same thing. Hmm. Have you been surprised at the degree to which um, just artists and popular culture have picked up the idea of Rorschach test, both as a phrase that's used, let's say, in newspapers and stuff, but also, I mean, Andy Warhol painted a painting, right, called Rorschach. Then Jay-Z put that painting on the cover of his book. Um, uh, pictures of Rorschach tests have been in the in the windows of, you know, fancy New York uh, department stores. So, right. Are you surprised at the degree to which it still seems to seep through and people are still really interested in this idea? Well, I'm not surprised. I mean, it was one of the things I was struck by. It was one of the things that made me think, you know, this is an interesting story here, that it's not just visual, but it means something to people. And that's why it keeps getting taken up over and over again. You know, one of the great inkblot uses in popular culture is the video for the Gnarls Barkley song, Crazy, which <laughs> everyone who hasn't seen it should go to YouTube and look up. It's uh, these ink blots morphing around. But the reason that the agency who pitched the idea for, hey, let's make it ink blotty, the reason they got the job is because CeeLo Green remembered having been given the real Rorschach test when he was a troubled teenager. So, you know, it's because it's so in the culture that it's a flashpoint in psychology, and it's because it's so used in psychology that, you know, it continues to find resonances among people designing T-shirts. Damien Searles is the author of The Inkblots, Herman Rorschach, His Iconic Test, and The Power of Seeing. Damien, thank you so much. Thank you. On our Facebook page, we've got a link to a recent 60-minute segment about the last Nuremberg prosecutor still living. He's 97, and what he said echoes what the Rorschach test discovered about the Nazis. Now I will tell you something very profound, which I have learned after many years. War makes murderers out of otherwise decent people. All wars 
and all decent people. This is an amazing man. Check out the segment. We've got the link for you at facebook.com slash innovation hub radio. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Destination Medical Center, a strategic economic initiative in Rochester, Minnesota, to build global destinations for life science, medicine, and health. Learn more at dmc.mn. The whirlwind of news around us is so intense these days. Some people tune in, some people drop out, and some people are just plain discouraged. Among the people in that last group, apparently, are kids. Kids spend about nine hours a day in front of screens. Common Sense Media, which rates movies and TV shows and video games for millions of parents and teachers, has come out with research showing that kids have not only become saddened by what they hear in the news, they also feel unrepresented. Jim Steyer is the founder and CEO of Common Sense Media, and he teaches at Stanford. He's here to talk about why he lobbies for kids, how tech is changing families, and the results of that new study on how kids feel about the news. Jim, thanks for coming into the studio. Great to be here. So you said that uh, what you wanted to do with your life, with creating this organization, is start an AARP for kids. You know, Correct. AARP is a great advocate for older people. It helps to lobby on, on, on their behalf. But we don't really have anything that lobbies for kids, in part because kids don't vote. Before we get into what you do, what do you think are the downsides of kids not having a lobbyist? Uh, like, what are the costs to them? Well, kids are the most important natural resource that this society and any society has, and they've been deeply underinvested in over the past 30 years, and the evidence is everywhere, from schools that are failing to have achievement levels that they should have to lack of early childhood investment in the lives of millions of kids and families, and quite honestly, in terms of economic and social performance all across the country. So kids, in my opinion and the opinion of the folks who have helped build common sense into the biggest advocacy voice for kids in the country, uh, feel should be the number one priority in this country in terms of domestic policy. But they aren't, and it's because they don't have political power. See, that seems strange to me in a sense because, you know, you talked about kids being our most important resource. I think every parent would say the most important thing to them, right, is their kids. And and maybe kids aren't voters, but parents are voters. Right. And they care. If their top priority is their kid, you would think that politicians would care about kids simply because you know, you make lives for kids better, you've got their parents. But two things. One, all politicians pay lip service to this, but many of them fail to deliver the goods. And second, you've had a bunch of mean-spirited policies in this country dating back to the early 1980s, which have gutted programs that help families. And if you want to help kids, you have to help families, particularly middle and lower income families. Well, and then you layer onto the economic issues of parenting, the technological issues of parenting now. Um, I mean, I know I'm always conflicted about um, how much screen time both to give to my daughter and then how much I should be on screens in front of her. Uh, So I think internally, this is a discussion that people are having. Um, I know sometimes I come out on the side of, well, I I am reading an informative article, but I'm still sitting in front of a screen. And sometimes I think, yeah, but I'm learning things. The, The right answer is the classic answer for all parents. And I can say this is the data for Balance and moderation. And it's really true because this is not a simple issue. Look, we did research last year about addiction and device addiction. And 
60% of kids admitted they were addicted to their devices. 60% admitted that, so you know the number's higher, right? And 50% of parents thought that they were. That's really interesting stuff. Now, it might not be a classic definition of addiction that a psychology PhD at Harvard or Stanford would use, but I think people are addicted to their devices. Well, it's interesting that they feel that way, Even, even if it's not actually sort of the right terminology, it's interesting that they term it as something that maybe they're not 100% sure they have control over. I totally, well, there's no question that they don't, and you probably don't either, because I think the devices are addictive. The content is, and the platforms have changed. I'm old enough so that I still read the paper version of the New York Times or the Boston Globe or whatever, but kids don't. And even the most recent research we're just coming out with on news media, you know, where kids get their news... The two most important sources are family, parents, right? But also, you know, on social media platforms like Facebook, Snapchat, Instagram, et cetera. Whereas if you look at adults, they still get it from the newspaper, from the radio, or from broadcast or cable TV. So let me uh, sort of bring together a couple of things that we've talked about, which is Common Sense recently did this work on um, kids and and how they look at news media. And if you've got kids spending, oh my gosh, nine eight, nine, ten hours a day, right, yep. in front of screens, and then they look at news, which inevitably, I would think, would sort of cross those screens, even if they're just looking at Facebook feeds. People are always posting news items. Absolutely. But they don't feel represented. They feel discouraged by the news that they hear. Put those things together for me and tell me what you're concerned about or what you've got there. Well, I'm concerned about several things. Number one, that they don't feel represented. And I think the stats are that 60, from our recent study, is 63% of kids feel sad, afraid, or depressed when they watch news. Here's the second issue. Now, in the era of Donald Trump, we've developed this issue with fake news and, quote, alternative facts, unquote. Really? Well, that's a big issue because half of kids say they can't tell the difference between something on the Internet and whether it's fake or true. It's hard enough for adults to tell the difference. Okay, it is, and adults say that in our research, too. But that was not a problem two or three years ago. I mean, people have to realize this is a recent phenomenon. Okay, so what do you make it? If kids kids can't tell that, yeah. News literacy. Yeah. So you have to teach kids to distinguish is something well-sourced. Where did it come from? One of the challenges of this innovative world of digital platforms and technology is it's sometimes hard to figure out what the source of a story is. And so we're going to have to figure out how to teach young people as well as adults about that. And also to have a reverence for the truth and for the First Amendment and for a free and fair press. This is Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller and I'm talking to Jim Steyer, the founder and CEO of Common Sense Media. This is really tricky, though, because kids can barely tell the difference between a show and, like, the commercial that's during the show. So it seems like a high mountain to climb to get kids to know about the nuances of, like, the big issues of the day um, and understand about politics and truth. I think this is going to be a hugely important thing. And there is a silver lining here. I actually think that in that way, we've become lazy as a society, not educating our kids about current events, not educating them about our basic constitutional principles and democratic principles. Also, the tech companies only after the election said, oh, we need to start fact-checking some of the stuff on our platform. So I think one of the other big things here is not just educating young people and teachers and parents about news literacy, but it's also holding the tech industry responsible. 
the sort of libertarian approach that everything is fine and we're just going to give you everything and forget about the consequences that you see from the leadership of some of the most important technology companies in the country based out in the Bay Area where I live mm -hmm. and where Common Sense's headquarters are is a very troubling phenomenon. Mm. There is a responsibility to tell the audience that some of what you're about to watch is really inappropriate or mm -hmm. is really scary or really offensive. And I think that you are in a new era in which the gatekeepers are no longer ABC, NBC, CBS, and NPR. Mm -hmm. They are now Facebook, Snapchat, Google, and others. So where's the responsibility? It's huge. And where is the leadership in those companies saying, we're going to take that on? Because they they're making billions of dollars providing that information to you and selling advertising around it. Do, do they, in your view, have a responsibility to impose ratings on things in a more sort of transparent way well, that parents can absolutely, see? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've had, by the way, we know the heads of those companies well. If any of them are listening, they have heard me say this to their <laughs> face so they can hear it again. They absolutely have an ability to help curate it for the audience. And they absolutely, with their billions in profits, ought to be spending money explaining to the broader audience about what you're going to get on this platform or this piece of it. Mm. And they and they have, an, I believe, a responsibility to fact check some of the fake news stuff that's been done, you know, and allowing everything from Russian lies and propaganda to fake news intentionally created to deceive voters and young people about things. I think that they have an enormous responsibility. With enormous profits go enormous responsibility in a capitalist society like ours. One of the findings of the work that you've done is that kids often don't feel like they're represented yes. um, in the news. And I wonder, like, what does that mean to you when when you think about, you know, people not being represented and the both what it means and the impact of it? I think there are two distinct parts of that. So on the one hand, I think when kids say that, because that's what the recent research shows, I think it means that the issues they care about are not being represented. So that would mean issues about education, about their communities, about health care and kids. Kids are smart. They understand that's really important, but they're just not covered. But I think the second thing has to do with gender and racial bias. So I, I mentioned I have four children. Our youngest child is an adopted black kid who's just turned 13. So when he sees in the news media pictures of black kids like him, they're in handcuffs or they're being accused of crimes or violence. That's not representative of all of Jesse's life, by the way, or for that for most kids of color. So I think they also feel, kids of color feel, which is an increasingly large segment of the population in the United States. Well, I was going to say, I feel like I heard a year or two ago that kindergartners are now majority minority. So, you know, yes. what kindergartners look like, let's say, and what 60-year-olds look right. like is like it's a it's a different America in some sense. But the racial stereotypes in the news media persist, right, particularly for kids of color. So I live in California. And if you look in the public schools in L.A., they're like 75 percent Latino. I don't know the exact number, but they're well over. They're majority Latino. The pictures of Latinos in the media that the average person around the country sees are not accurate. They oftentimes have gang members or, you know, illegal immigrants or all sorts of other ridiculous stereotypes that have nothing to do with the reality. So I think when kids feel misrepresented, it's that oftentimes, particularly for the diversity of young people in this country today, they're inaccurately represented. And then second, the issues they care about are not covered by the news media. Jim Steyer is founder and chief executive officer of Common Sense Media, which helps kids and parents navigate the digital world. He's also a professor at Stanford. Thanks so much for coming into the studio. Thank you for having me. Good luck as a parent, Kara. <laughs> Thank you. I need it. You did. We all did.
A couple of weeks ago, we asked our listeners, specifically our young listeners, how kids get their news. And we received a very eloquent letter from a 13-year-old. I get most of my news from either watching television or from reading the newspaper. That's Veronica Bernier. She goes by Nika. Like a lot of us, she sees a big difference between reading a physical paper and reading the news on a screen. I think that when it's paper news, you get the sense of, that's it, that's final, that's exactly what the news is. But if you have it on online, and there are comments, you can get more than one sense. And as a young adult, I think that when I see the comments, I like, I like to scroll through the comments and see what people are saying to help shape a larger, more rounded opinion. Nika also reflects Common Sense Media's finding that a majority of kids feel that the news doesn't cover issues that matter to them. Well, it seems that most of the local news that does occur is mostly about robberies or crime. And I was thinking maybe we could have a little bit more about space or environmental issues or maybe women's rights. We loved hearing from Nika, and we'd love to hear from you, too. You can find us on Facebook, facebook.com slash innovationhubradio, and our contact info is at innovationhub.org. Thanks to the people who helped put together this show. Senior producer Matt Purdy, associate producers Mark Solinger and Caroline Lester, and engineer Doug Sugarts. From PRI and WGBH Radio, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Support for Innovation Hub comes from Dana-Farber Cancer Institute. Discover. Care. Believe. PRI Public Radio International.